And Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would make real to each of us the things we need to hear, things we need to come to understand. Lord, I know our whole life is a process of being conformed to your image. There's always areas that we're learning and growing in, so help us with the things we need to learn and grow in this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody that gets email, everybody gets trash email from time to time. You know, in fact, on ours, we've got a filter every once in a while. It'll tell me, go to this site, and there's, there's 30, literally. It's almost always 30 or more emails that are unsolicited uh, offers to buy one thing or another. You know, you just hit select all and delete. Once in a while, I get these more personal type emails, unsolicited also. One of my favorites is from a guy whose name I don't... I just. I just worked on this one not long ago, probably last week, uh, and it's probably the third time I've had this one in about two or three years, and it's from the heir of a former African nation leader. And, and I don't know if any of you have received this. And anyway, he's looking for trustworthy individuals like myself to give millions of dollars to so that it can be safely protected in my bank account. And he's just asking for my cooperation. And so, you know, as soon as when I saw it again this last week, you know, I moved my arrow to the trash, the delete file right away. And the reason is, of course, because I don't believe a word this thing says. I don't believe it. So I trash it. I get rid of it. Uh, what you and I believe, apart from emails, determines how we live our life. What you believe to be true or false absolutely governs the things you choose to do or not do, where you go what you do, who you interact with, etc. The whole course of your life comes down to, it's defined by what you believe to be true. That's the bottom line. And this morning, we're going to put up our fourth foundation wall, which is the foundation wall of faith. Faith. As I was thinking about this, faith is so important in the scripture that it would probably be safe to say that not only is this one of those essential components for the foundation of your life, but it, it goes beyond that so that if we compare our life to a structure, to a house, faith would be the glue and it would be the fasteners that would be used throughout the house to hold it all together. Faith is that basic. It is that foundational. You remember back on our opening verse for this series, Matthew seven twenty four, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. This verse would only be meaningful to you as far as following up on what Jesus says if you believe his words to be true. If Jesus is just some other Joe Schmo on the corner, why would you give any credence to his words? Why would you believe them? And much less, why would you act on them? Unless you believe what he said was true. So it's what we believe to be true, what we place faith in. That is elemental. It's, it's the very basic uh, nature of the structure of any life. Um, I remember years ago reading someone's uh, book. I can't remember what it was on specifically, but he pointed out that everyone has a worldview. If you use a phrase like worldview to some people, they look at you funny like, well, I don't have a worldview. Well, yeah, you do. Everyone has a worldview because if you say, boil that down, what does that mean? It, it means, What's my understanding of the world around me? What do I understand to be true of the world I live in? And we all believe something. We believe something because we're making decisions based on something. So we all have a worldview. We all believe something that guides our acts and our decisions. So what 
what do we believe and who do we believe? What do we believe? Who do we believe? Those are the things that are going to guide our foundation and, in fact, all our life. Remember, we looked at earlier the fact that even as a Christian, if you didn't forgive others, if you didn't seek forgiveness when needed, and if you didn't obey, you couldn't build on a solid foundation because God was at odds with you. Even as His children, those acts of disobedience and a failure to forgive or seek forgiveness, He said, put impediments between us and Him. So we're not free to interact with Him as He would want us to be able to. And we're not free to build on a solid foundation apart from Him. Christ is the foundation. So clearly in any area of our life in which we're not fellowshipping with Him, we're off the footing to begin with. We're not even in the ballpark. This issue of faith is so important. It's at least important and again, even more foundational than the other three. And I want to start at Hebrews 11.6 for explaining why I'm saying that. Hebrews 11.6 says... Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those who come to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Was that one of the verses you heard last week, Hannah? Okay. Key verse on faith. Key verse on faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's fairly significant. You cannot please God in anything and in any way apart from the element of faith. Can't happen. Let me tell you how important this is. In Revelation 21.8, this is not one of my favorite verses, but I'm reading this for a reason. Just before this verse, we're talking about the new Jerusalem and heaven and eternity to come for all those who know Christ. And listen to Revelation 21.8. Here's this happy group going into eternity with Jesus Christ in eternity. And then John turns and says this in verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and idolaters and sorcerers and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What I want to point out here is Immoral persons is not at the top of the list. And murderers is not at the front of the list. Hitler's actions of hatred and evil and murder, they're not at the top of the list. Do you see what is? The the group that lead those, it says, that spend eternity in the second death, that means apart from God who is life, in the lake of fire, are cowardly and unbelieving. The reason this is important, I think, gets down to this. God has revealed himself in history to be entirely benevolent, loving, and good. And yet the cowardly are afraid to entrust themselves to a God who can, it says, only do them good if they would come to him. The unbelieving is the God that they have called a liar is incapable of lying. Do you see? This is what this, is what this gets down to. Those in hell at the top of the list are those who refuse to acknowledge character traits of God that go without question. God is good, he states repeatedly, and holy, which is essentially the same thing, both Testaments, and he cannot lie. So here at the head of the list of those who are not going to enjoy God's presence forever are those who would not believe a God who cannot lie, would not entrust themselves to a God who would only do them good. 
and who ultimately demonstrated that in his giving his own son to die in their stead. You see, this is, God says, I have demonstrated my love so fully. I have provided for your forgiveness so completely in my son that to reject him is to reject any hope of salvation. And it goes to the very heart of who God is and what he's like. So the head of the list isn't murderers and sorcerers, witchcraft, types of things we think of as inherently evil. Those who head the list are those who will not believe a God who can't lie and who will not trust a God who is in himself fully and completely benevolent and good. This is how important faith is. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can go back, if you're in Hebrews 11, go back to verse 1. If we say, what is faith? Let's define faith. Let's start by defining what faith is. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. This sounds a little fuzzy, but in context, the thought is this. Faith is the assurance that what God has said would take place will take place before it happens. The conviction of things not seen, promises yet unfulfilled, we're convinced, we're convicted, will happen because God has spoken them. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Biblically, a hope is a promise that God has made that has not yet taken place. It's not, I hope such and such will happen. It's a future event that I've set my heart on because God has said it's going to happen. It just hasn't transpired yet. That's biblical hope. So faith is the assurance of things uh, hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This all ties to what God has promised, to what God has promised. So he tells us that faith is believing that what he has said is true and that what he has said will happen in the future will happen. This applies to tons and tons and tons of things, which is why even as a Christian, we'll talk more about this, but to live a life of unfaithfulness, not necessarily being intentionally disobedient, but just not believing and trusting God, it affects every area of your life, and it has to. It is, it's not just the foundation, it's the glue and the fasteners of your life. Our family's definition of faith is, faith is believing God's word is true, and what he has promised he'll do. That's the same kind of elements of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Synonyms for faith This is a big deal because sometimes people, especially related to salvation, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? Synonyms are believe. In fact, in the whole Gospel of John, believe is used as a synonym for faith, and believe is the key word in that whole Gospel. John says, I'm telling you these things so you can believe, and when you believe, you have life in his name. That's the same. That's faith. Uh, Another word I like for faith or believe is trust. Um. If I say, I know Melody, and I say, I trust Melody, that means I have faith in what she says. I believe what she says. I trust it. Or I entrust myself to Melody if she tells me she's going to do such and such a thing. Trust is another good synonym. To have confidence in, this this word up in uh, Hebrews 11.1, convicted, confidence that that thing is true or will be done as God said it would be. So that's what faith is, confidence in God and what he said, belief, trust, faith in God that what he says is true and that he'll do what he says he'll do. That's what it comes down to. I want to clarify the flip side of this, what faith is not. This is absolutely fundamental, and I think many, many Christians are confused on this. 
some more than others. Faith is not believing something hard enough. You'll hear sometimes, if you just believed harder, such and such would happen. If I believe hard enough, this is to me, this is like Peter Pan. Or if I believe, you know, when Tinkerbell, clap for Tinkerbell. I don't know if you guys remember this anyway. Believe hard enough, it'll make it so. This may be wishful thinking, but this is not biblical faith. Believing something hard enough, I believe that I am 6'8 and an NBA player. It ain't so, and it never will be so. My believing it will not make it so. In fact, my wife calls this magical thinking. It's frankly, it's disassociated from reality. This is not biblical faith. This is insanity. Believing harder doesn't make it so. That's not biblical faith. It's magical thinking. Faith is not a leap in the dark. You know, a lot of times I've even heard Christians say, well, I just trusted Christ because there was nothing else to do. I just believed God as if I don't know anything else and I don't even know what I'm telling you about, but I just believed. And I'm not even sure what I believed. I just took a leap of faith, leap in the dark. This is absolutely not biblical faith. Biblical faith is so sound, it is, it's sounder than a concrete floor and it's harder than a steel wall. Biblical faith is the most rational, sane, logical thing you can ever do. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not insanity, believing something so that isn't. It's not magical thinking. It's rational. It's sane. I say that because this. If God, who cannot lie, says something is so, what is the only sane thing to do? To believe Him. There's no other sane response. There's no other logical response. If God tells you the sun will rise tomorrow at 6, and God can't lie, and He has all power, the sun will rise at 6. And for me to believe so is simply the only rational response I could have. This isn't, it's not voodoo, it's not magic. This is clear thinking. And I don't say it's reduced to clear thinking only, but it certainly is at least that. Also, Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God or of Christ. Faith comes from hearing God's word. I say that to say this. If God hasn't said something, you can't have biblical faith. Are you with me on this? Now, he's covered all the bases. All the major bases are covered, but you need to hear this. If God hasn't spoken about something, you cannot have biblical faith. It's impossible because biblical faith is believing what God has said. If he's not touched something, if he's not spoken about a matter, you cannot have biblical faith. Faith is always a response to believe what God has declared. If he hasn't declared it, you can't have faith in it. Faith comes by hearing God's word. Faith is always a response to God. We don't initiate in this. God does. God says something. We hear it or we read it and we believe it. Now, here's just a little question for you. If God requires faith from us to please Him, if faith is required to build a life on a solid foundation, and if faith is a response to what God has said in His Word, I wonder where you and I should be spending our time. Does this make sense? I wonder where you and I should be spending our time. 
Impossible to please him without faith. Faith comes from hearing his word. What's the end of this formula? wonder where I should be spending my time. I'll bet you can figure that out. Think about faith in relationship to your becoming a Christian. Your process went something like this. Not necessarily the same, but roughly something like this. You're going along in life, and somebody shares a gospel track with you, or they tell you the gospel, or you read your Bible. I mean, it might be a variety of ways, but you hear a message, you hear God's word that says, guess what, you got a problem, you're separated from God. God has a solution, Jesus Christ has died for your sins. And for most of us, this does not happen overnight, even though ideally it would. We'd hear the truth, we'd recognize the source, and we'd believe. But typically, it takes a while to soak in. And you know what? If we've become a Christian, this is all percolated down, and we've recognized the truth of the gospel message. I am sinner. I recognize the, not only the sin in myself, but I recognize I'm cut off from God. I, I recognize a void in the center of my being. And I've heard God has said he's provided a son to cover my sin and that if I trust him to save me, he will, and I start a new life. And so the end of that formula, the end of the information, God's word to us is we believe. We have faith and then we're saved. Listen to the way Paul says this in Romans 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to all who will believe. To the Jew first, because they were in covenant with God, and to the Gentile or to the Greeks also. Verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We receive this righteousness in the message by faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. What I'm getting at is this. Our entrance into the Christian life, into a relationship with God, begins through faith. And the verse in in verse 17, the righteous man shall live by faith, is supposed to tell us that we begin this life through faith. Faith is the key, if you will, that opens the door. But it doesn't stop there. The righteous live not just at the moment of salvation, but the righteous live every day by faith. That faith is the rule of life for us, if you will. It should be the undergirding of everything we do. We've heard God's word. We believe it, and we're acting on it every day of our life. This affects us. It's not just what we do. It's how we feel. It's how we respond to the temptations in our mind or to the emotions that well up when we're unguarded or not even thinking. This affects everything we do, this issue, faith, what we choose to believe, and then what we act on. So having begun a life in Christ through faith, he's calling on us to live it every day. We started through faith. We live through faith. We're supposed to finish that way. Uh, Let me suggest that if you want to determine what a person really believes to be true, what they really have faith in, uh, don't ask them what they believe. Watch what they do. If I asked you, if we took a poll and I say, do you believe that the Bible is true? I'm assuming everyone here would say, absolutely, it's true. Then if I said, do you believe all the declarations of fact in the Bible are true? Every, every declaration, every statement that declares something is so. Do you believe it's true? And, and I'm, I'm sure, just all, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Then if we look at the way we live, would we say that those, all those statements of the Bible, are, do we really believe they're true? No way. No way. 
what we really believe to be true is demonstrated by what we choose to do. This is why we were talking last week about obedience. See, if you don't really believe God, you don't obey. There's no motive to. There's no incentive because we don't believe what he said is true. So we're free to do what we think is true. We define our own reality and then we act on that. See, that's why I say it's insane. Faith is the only rational, sane response to life, to reality. It's the only one. But the the truth uh, value here for us is not what we say we believe, it's what we do. When I was raised, and I bless my parents for lots of, lots of reasons, but I was raised, I would have told you as a young teenager what I had learned in church growing up, and I would have told you that I believed Jesus Christ was the Son of God, God the Son, who died for my sins. I would have said absolutely yes to all of that, and I can tell you I was not a Christian. And if you ask me, Mike, on what basis do you hope to go to heaven? I would say, what 9 out of 10 people in most churches would say, I would say, I hope I'm a good person and live a good life and, you know, the balances will I'll go up. I'm in. See, that's not salvation. So I would, have, I would have assented to something as being true that I really didn't believe. But I'd been told it, and so I thought I believed it, but I didn't. And that was proved when you asked me the question, how do you go to heaven? Then I'd tell you the truth, what I really believe. You try and be a good person. You merit your way in. It's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. So when we want to say or ask, Lord, in what areas in my life am I not living faithfully, that is, believing your word and acting appropriately on it, just look at your life in the areas you disobey. This is easy. Where do I not obey God? Just for instance, I'm tempted to fearfulness and anxiety. That's where I live, day in and day out. I tell Kathy, sometimes I feel like a manic depressive. I can be up one minute and down another. It's generally related to some sense of dread related to fear or anxiety or that life's okay and and I'm rolling along. But see, when those feelings, those emotions come up and those temptations to fear... The scripture says explicitly that I am not to be afraid. Fear God only and fear nothing else. When that temptation to fear comes up, see, I'm choosing what I believe is true. Can that thing or that person or that event really harm me? No, God says no. Now, they can kill the body. I mean, it can get pretty bad. But God says, hey, don't worry about that because there's something bigger and better. So when I entertain those fears, I'm disobeying. You know, we tend to want to pat fearful people on the back. Well, that's okay sometimes. Sometimes they need a, what do you call it, a, a something to the rear. <clears throat> you know, the <clears throat> to, get, to get going. See, sometimes we need to remember, even related to fear, I'm disobeying. It's disobedience to entertain those fearful, anxious no, notions because God says don't do it. What is true instead? That's when I fix my mind on what God has said is true. You know, no temptation. Am I faced with it? God hasn't made provision for. Okay, Lord, I'm feeling tempted. Mike, don't worry, it's provided for. You don't need to go there. Or be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving. That's what I can be doing. I can change. You can change your outlook on life in a moment. In a moment, no matter how angry, bitter, fearful, anxious, whatever, by simply refocusing your mind on what's true. 
See, because at the moment when you're doing those things, those disobedience, as little as entertaining fearful notions, you're believing something that isn't true or you're giving it importance that God says it doesn't have in every area of your life. So if you want to ask yourself, Lord, where do I not believe you? Look at your life. Here's another one, giving. We teach very little on giving in the church, I hope you know, and I do that very intentionally because in many churches, giving, people are manipulative and it's coercive. And I think, frankly, money is the last thing God needs in the sense that God is not a pauper and he provides for what he wants to have done. But for our benefit, you know, you read Proverbs 3, it says, give to God first. And your, your barns will overflow and your, your vats will be full. Or you read 2 Corinthians 8 9 on giving too. And it says, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly, etc. Well, you know what? If I believe that God's committed to me and that he's going to provide for my needs out of his abundance in Christ, I can afford to do those things. I can give first. <clears throat> I can give generously because I believe God's good to his word. And that if I give, I'm, God is always going to provide for our needs. And so the fact of my belief in God's statement is indicated in my giving. This is just another example. But you can look at every area of your life and ask the same question. Lord, what do I believe you in? And what do I not believe you in? Here's another one. We got a letter from a missionary friend this last week. She made a little joke at the end of the letter about praying for a husband. And she's getting on. She's almost ancient. She's in her 30s. And she's not married. And she's adopted a couple little kids. She's a single parent. Never been married. She's a single parent. And we laughed at the end. But I know this gal's trusting God related to a spouse. This was the first time she's ever said anything about it. But we've known so many what I will call career-age singles throughout life. None of them said that God gave them the gift of singleness. I haven't met one yet. I'm sure there's, there's a few around, but I haven't met them. Well, let's just say that I'm 25 and think I should be married and God doesn't marry me. What do I do? What's my outlook on life? Is God still good? Is his blessing with me every day? Can I experience his love, joy, peace every day? Do you see what I'm saying? If I trust God related to my marriage or if I'm in a a bad marriage, if I'm struggling at marriage and wish I was anything but married, am I trusting God for my marriage and saying, God, in this situation, I know you can bless me And I can bless you, I can honor you by believing what you've said is true. See, this applies wherever we're at, in every area of your life. Faith is at issue. What has God said about it? Am I believing him? And am I acting on it? And it's that last one that tells you what you really believe is true. Absolutely can't be otherwise. Uh, Sometimes, too, related to belief, we think that we will get something through disobedience and avoid something else. For instance, we've talked about forgiveness. If I entertain bitterness and anger towards someone who's really harmed me, but I know God's required of me, he's commanded me to forgive, I believe that I'm going to get something positive out of my disobedience that's better than what I'd get through obedience. Do you see this again? This is insane. This is irrational. But that's my my preposition if I do it. I'm saying that the, whatever, the sense, we've all done this, but this coddling, this sense of injury and offense and bitterness, it feels good in some way, that that in some crazy, twisted way, feels like life, but it's not. And of course, 
given long enough, it bears its fruit, and then we realize, yeah, it's death, and why did I ever think it'd be otherwise? Or lust, or greed, or envy, any of those things. We entertain them in our mind because we think something's true that's not. Or if I fail to obey, if I'm a spouse and I'm not loving my spouse. See, I'm, I'm believing something that's not true. I'm believing that doing something that other, other than God's called me to can actually be to my benefit. Well, it can't. Am I loving my spouse? Am I training my children? Am I honoring my parents? Am I doing right by my friends, my workers, my students, my employers, my employees? Do you see? Our obedience determines absolutely what we really believe to be true, what we really believe. Now, I will grant you that I know for all of us, we all, in this body, we sin. We fall short. It's a given. Scripture says so explicitly, repeatedly. And sometimes we're like the father of the demonized boy who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you can, heal my son. And he says, what do you mean if I can? And you know, the father's response is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Sometimes we're insane. We're irrational. We're like him. We know we should believe and we're leaning that way, but we (laughs) just can't quite get over the line sometimes. Well, I think, you know, clearly what we can do is remind ourselves of what God has said is true and meditate on his character qualities, his goodness, his faithfulness. And we'll come back around. But sometimes we're like that. Dad, we need to refocus our thinking. We need to hear Jesus' words again. The difficulty with, I think, us, most Christians, that is related to this area of faith, isn't that we say we believe or we don't believe, absolutely black and white. It's that we're actually double-minded. We're double-minded. We believe and we don't believe. And it's the double-mindedness that gets us in trouble. Listen to this out of James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given. This is an absolute statement. You need wisdom, ask God, he'll give it. But let him ask in faith, trusting, believing God will, will do it, will give it, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, the reason we're called to not be double-minded is because our faith is not in ourselves, it's in God. So when we're going to God asking for wisdom, it's because God has said he's good and he'll give it to us. And he's a good God and he can't lie. So you see, when we come to God and say, Lord, I need wisdom and I'm asking for it, but I'm not sure you'll give it, we are in essence calling God a liar. We're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. Lord, I'm hoping you'll give me something you've, you've told me you will, but I'm not really sure that you'll do it. Do you see that? It's a shade on his character. We're impugning him. He is good and he can't lie. So if he said, ask him for something and he'll give it, that's all he can do. He's bound by his word. So when we are double-minded about it, we're unstable. And I love this analogy. He says, uh, you're like the surf of the sea. You know, they've just had a hurricane come through the East Coast. You know, when the wind, even on a lake, you can see the, the waves just get churned up and the wind drives them one direction and another. 
when we live our life half believing, half unbelieving, half in faith, half in unbelief, we're like that ship. In fact, think of it on one hand, if you were a ship, an old sail ship, with sails up to catch the wind, and you had no rudder, and you're in the middle of the ocean, you have no direction. Your direction is entirely dictated by whichever way the wind blows. So you could literally be in the middle of the Atlantic and never reach shore, never reach a destination without a rudder, because the winds would just blow you whichever way, and there's prevailing winds and all that good stuff. But the point is, you would simply be left to the direction the wind happened to blow. You can't steer. And, and the rudder would be like believing God and His Word. Or imagine this. You're in a sail ship, and you're in the docks in London, let's say, and you mean to go to New York. Well, let's say that you put out from London, and you've got the wind, and the captain's at the till, and the rudder is steering us straight to New York, and then halfway there I decide that I'm really not sure that this is the direction to New York. And maybe the stars and the sun are lying to me. I'll turn around, and I'll go back. And as I approach London again, I think, gosh, you know, no, I really think that other way is the way. And so I'll turn around again and go back. Do you see that ship? It can just go in circles and never reach its destination. And frankly, I can't tell you how true this is. Of countless Christians, we live this life of mediocrity going in circles, and it's because we do not believe God and His Word. We believe for a while, then we don't believe. We trust Him a little, and we don't trust Him a lot. And we're either the rudderless ship just going in circles aimlessly or we're the ship going back and forth depending on how we happen to feel about God's integrity that day or what he said is true. You see, in the end, this has nothing to do with us. For a person to believe God is just casting ourselves on a God who can't lie anyway. This should be easy. This should be like falling down. This should be as easy as falling down. I love the verse in 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah says, How long will you hesitate between two opinions, Israel? Either worship Baal or worship God, but give up trying to worship both. They're not both God. Joshua says the same thing in Joshua 24. Make up your mind. Who will you serve? That's the same call to us today. It's to give up double-mindedness. When we're double-minded... We're like that aimless ship or the ship going back and forth. And we're like Jesus in Jesus' illustration. To the degree that I believe and obey, I am building on rock. But to the degree that I don't believe and therefore disobey, I'm building on sand. Do you know what happens to a foundation that's built part on solid soil and part on soft? It cracks in half. It breaks and it fails. And if half of your basement cracks, you're in trouble. If half of your foundation cracks, you're in trouble. But that's what we're doing to the degree that we are double-minded. And so when we recognize that we are, say with the dad, Lord, I believe and help my unbelief. And to do that, we get back in God's word. We refocus our thoughts. Let me close with just a very brief example of a life of faith. Abraham, in Genesis 15, in fact, we're introduced to him in chapter 12, and And he obeys God's word to leave Ur and then Haran, and he comes down into the land of Palestine or Canaan. And he does all that before he's saved. And he's heirless. And actually, when in Genesis 15, 6, 
God, God tells Abraham in the verse preceding that he's going to give him as many children as the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore. And Genesis 15, 6 says of Abraham, he believed in the Lord and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is just like you and I. We hear the gospel and we believe. Abraham didn't know who the Messiah was and he certainly didn't know him by name. But when God said something was true, he believed it. People in all ages have always been saved the same way, by faith, through God's grace. Always the same. Abraham believed God and God says, Abe, you're in, you're righteous. Abraham is the example of faith in Romans, Paul uses, and in Hebrews 11. But you know, he had his moments too. He had his double-mindedness too, didn't he? Do you remember in Genesis 17... Uh, Sarai and Abe did take things into their own hand. You know, they got tired of waiting for that promise. And so Sarai's great idea was to have Hagar bear her a son. And so she does. And so they've got Ishmael. And God comes marching along one day and says, Abe, I'm going to give you a son. Well, Abraham's 100 years old. You know what his response is? He laughs. This is not the verse we think of with Father Abraham, but this is what Abraham did, didn't he? He laughed. Why? Because he doesn't believe it. And in fact, this passage closes, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, Lord. He says, Lord, I'm 100. She's 90. No way. Bless Ishmael. Make him the promise that you gave me. He doubted. He wasn't perfect. He's just like you and I. He had that issue where he wasn't, He didn't believe God's word, or he certainly didn't believe him the first time. But God said he would do something, and it wasn't dependent on Abe believing. And he did it. And a year later, they have Isaac. Several years after that, God tells him, you take your son, your only son, and you march him up to Mount Moriah, and you sacrifice him there to me. You offer him to me. Now, frankly, the scripture doesn't say much other than just the storyline. It's left to our imagination to think what Abraham thought and how he felt. What do you mean? There's not even a question brought up in the text. God, this is the one you told me you'd give me. This is the one through whom you're supposed to give me as many descendants as the stars and the sand, and you tell me to kill him. But, of course, he goes up to the mountain, and he binds him, and he puts him on the wood, and he raises his hand with the knife. And he does so based on this. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, Genesis 15, 6, was offering up his only begotten son. Why, did, why could he do it? Why did he do it? It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. This is why, verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Through him you'll have countless descendants, and it's Isaac. And even though it seemed impossible to get him, he gives him Isaac. And so Abraham's thinking, great, we're good to go. When God says, now offer your son, your only son, Abraham could do it because he believed God's promise. He trusted him. He thought, Hebrews tells us, he thought 
God, I understand that because you've said something will happen, you've declared it to be true, I understand that you'll raise Isaac from the dead if that's what it takes to fulfill your promise and keep your word. And of course, it's, the, it's the most, one of the most dramatic pictures of Christ and the Father in all the Bible. God the Father giving Jesus his Son on the altar. And he did it, and God didn't spare his own son. But Abraham trusted, and he thought, Lord, you've said it, it's true, it'll happen, I can do this. And really, for you and I, you know, so many times, you'll face a situation in which God's word objectively says something is true, and you look at your life and you just say, it ain't so. I see no objective reality to what God says is true of me or of my situation. But what God has said is true is still true. And this is where I'm I'm not using a lot of specifics today because this is so broad. Just think in your own life, and we'll take a minute here when we close in prayer. But we take a moment to examine your own life to see where it's falling short, either in an area of disobedience or um, in some area of, of lack in your own soul, you know, in your own emotions or your outlook for the future or this affects everything, every area of your life. And in whatever area that is, that's where we say, okay, Lord, uh, if I just see that my life is constantly full of fear, then you know what I would do? I would look up in the scripture, I would use my concordance, and I'd look up what the Bible says about fear and about faith and about trust. So then I'd fill my mind and my thoughts with what God has said is true and when I'm faced with those temptations to fear or doubt, I focus on what God has said, just like Abraham did. Lord, you promised me descendants through this boy. I know you'll do it. We can say the same thing in every area of our life. So this faith, as far as our foundation, this is absolutely foundational. And it is the glue and the fasteners that hold the whole thing together. And you will find that if you're double-minded, like that ship without a rudder or the, the captain's going in circles, your life will be miserable. And Christians, those who know Christ and are saved and going to heaven, but not living faithfully, they are typically some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet. And really, that, that's appropriate because you're saved and you know there's something better, but you're not living it. And, and so you're going in circles, and we're miserable. You know, when God fills that void in our heart and our soul for him, life, there is that sense of being fulfilled. But day to day, when we live as if we don't know him or what he says isn't true, there's that continuing sense of either failure or emptiness or whatever. And I think the degree to which we experience that is simply the degree to which we're not believing what he says. And again, it goes back to knowing what he has said. Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, I'm just struck that, as Pete says, uh, you've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And that, Lord, any provision we need in any area of our life, in any situation we face, Lord, it's fully provided for in your word. Every subject that we come across in our life is covered in one fashion or another in your word. It's what makes us uh, able 
to teach and to instruct or to correct or admonish. It's because you've said something about everything we face. Lord, help us to be proactive. Help us to search the scriptures to see what you say about the various areas we find ourselves in, challenged in, or just failing in. Lord, help us to read your word and to do the only sane thing to believe you and to act on that. Lord, help us to see those areas in our life where we simply aren't believing a God who can't lie and a Father who's given His Son who wouldn't withhold any good thing, whether that's a spouse or a happy marriage, whether it's finances, closer relationship with You. Lord, help us to be in Your Word so that we can believe what You say. And Lord, when we struggle with doubt, Help us to call out to you and cry out. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. Lord, thanks for who you are. Thanks that you're a God who can't lie. Thanks that you're good and that everything you do towards us is always and only good. In Jesus' name, amen.